Hello. We are here with the Music Prophet. I'm kind of stoked because this is going to be an interesting episode. There'll be, we're going to have some live music. And we're also going to hear from someone that has done a lot in Sudbury, but I think has also stayed hidden in a way too. Is part of a lot of projects and it goes between the spotlight, but then also just fades away to do her own projects or just to help build other things. So I'm really excited. And so our guest today is going to be... I'm Jennifer Holub. Hello. Are you excited? Because it's almost time for Northern Lights. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm well ready. In fact, in, uh, I'm so excited about the festival that I moved closer to Bell Park to be near to the festival. That's dedication right there. That's, if that's not dedication, Max Merrifield, then I don't know what is. Actually, um, when my partner and I got the keys and opened the door for the first time, uh, in the kitchen right on the fridge was a letter from Max Merrifield representing the Northern Lights to just let residents of the area know about the festival and to just in advance remind them that there's been a uh, temporary lift on the noise bylaw for that weekend, uh, you know, for, for Northern Lights. So it was a really beautiful moment to to have that calling us home. So we uh, were really excited to be in that neighborhood. Yeah, that's very ironic, almost in a way. Yeah, it's it's yeah, super serendipitous, and uh, it was very fitting. We're really we're really thrilled. How has Northern Lights played a role in your music career? It's been um, something that that is so fundamental to the start of my career. So that's a great question. Uh, when I returned to Sudbury after having worked in small towns in Northern Ontario as a teacher, I returned to Sudbury and um, uh, someone suggested that I auditioned for The Meltdown back in 2010. And I, I didn't think that at all I would be considered as a candidate. Um, I wasn't doing music professionally at all. I was just doing some open mic nights and I had written some songs, um, but I auditioned and I was selected and um, I was, uh, I was thrilled. And so that was the year that Northern Lights took place at Laurentian because of all the construction with the Grace Hartman Amphitheater, what's now the Grace Hartman Amphitheater and, and whatnot. So, um, it was a it was a weird festival experience because it wasn't very well attended, but um, like I've met some people now who have said that they've been following my career since I played that festival, which is really touching. And I thank Northern Lights for that opportunity. Uh, it's it it totally kickstarted um, everything that I did. In fact, because I was selected as the Meltdown winner that year, I got my act together and approached a recording engineer and put out an album and that album isn't available anywhere because it was it was not my best work but uh not the highest quality that it could be <laughs> no it was um it was just one of those like as an artist you have to be really um, forgiving of yourself with your infant and first projects because it's a necessary crap that you have to put out uh in order to to wade through and, and come up with something a bit more refined um i I love that album for a lot of reasons. It's just it was the starting point, and I'm I'm uh, I'm very thankful for it and the experience of recording. Um, but anyone who records for the first time, it's it's like riding a bike. It's not you don't know what you're doing. It doesn't look right or sound right all the time because you're not 
comfortable. So mm-hmm. it's, yeah, recording is a real skill that you have to learn and practice. So Was yeah. that something that, like, going into the recording of the first album, was that in your head, knowing that this is a trial? Or were you thinking that, oh, this is great, let's go do it, I'm going to kill it? I just had no idea. I was very nervous. I was, I knew that I didn't know what I was doing and uh, I, I didn't know what I was doing so much that I didn't have any um, backing band prepared. Uh, the recording engineer, Don Kunto, luckily is a multi-instrumentalist, so he was able to put drum and bass on it, um, sorry, drum and some uh, electric guitar on it and Chris Swain uh, played bass and they were great um, considering I hadn't given them any direction at all. They just sort of, um, you know, plugged away at it and uh yeah but it's uh that album isn't it's it's I didn't even get it mastered like it's not available anywhere so uh it's it'll it'll remain a secret do you find that you do the same thing now with or that you do have the same process when you decide that songs aren't worth putting out in general the same process of um like like with songwriting or now that you're more experienced do you still take that same approach well, now that now that I, I realize what makes the song that I'm more comfortable with, I cut a lot more stuff. Like I'm a lot pickier, um, and now that I've greased the wheels of songwriting, I write a lot more now than I used to, and can pump out a lot more now than I used to. So uh, because I have more material, I can pare down um, and and be a bit pickier, more selective of what, what I'm going to record and put onto an album. So yeah, yeah, it, it's definitely changed. Uh, whereas before I was not a very accomplished songwriter and I was just, I just recorded all of the songs I had written for that, on that first album. And, uh, and now I, I only record like a quarter of the songs that I'm thinking of putting onto an album. That's def- actually, it, that completely makes sense because I can remember a couple of years ago, I had this goal that I wanted to put out an acoustic album mm-hmm. and it was something that. I, I wrote 12 or 13 tracks and I thought, oh, this would be great. I'm just going to put, I'll just put these out there and actually look into recording. But then I started playing them a couple times and realized that most of them are not great. Well, and that <laughs> the other thing too is uh, that's a very subjective opinion, right? So mm-hmm. yeah, at the end of the day, you have to be comfortable with what you're putting out that represents you. Um, and some things that you think might be crap, other people might really like. And uh, that's a, a weird part about the whole thing. Um, it's so weird to see how people react to the music afterwards. Like um, When I was trying to select a single for my previous album, album um, for The Haunting, I, I really had no idea which single to pick. And I had a few in mind, but someone gave me this terrific advice um, that a lot of, a lot of uh, artists do. They'll send the album to a few people whose opinion they really trust. And usually it's other people in the industry and maybe mm-hmm. some friends that listen to a lot of music and are tastemakers. And they get everyone to pick which two they would select. And usually you're really surprised with the result. Um, but it's it's good research. It's mm-hmm. almost like market research. And uh, you know, you're selecting a, a sampling of an audience that really is going to care and consider the quality of the single. So that's what I've done for the past two albums now, um, The Reckoning and For the Haunting. And um, it's been tremendously helpful because then you can go forward with that single with confidence and know, okay, this is, this is a great choice and you can build 
um, a music video around that or whatever kind of release you want to do. And yeah. Does that change when your sound becomes more mainstream? Does what change the single selection? Yeah, the single selection, that process of going to mentors, so to speak, to do that. Does that change when it's when your sound is trying to reach a more broad audience? Um, I've not. It, it might for me. I've not ever tried to go after the broad audience. Um, my my material has, I think, incidentally become a bit more poppy uh, just because of the artistic direction. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a good question, but I I don't know. I've I've just looked for. I've just written songs um, for quality and not necessarily to follow the the pop machine. <laughs> pop machine, isn't that a bad Yeah, it's a play on words. <laughs> yeah. um, I have nothing against pop music. I love pop music. Uh, it's just not something that I can organically make. So uh, for me, I, I don't know. Yeah, it's a good question. Yeah, because you don't think about that, right? When you're creating the music or writing the songs, you don't think about what should this genre be, mostly. Right, yeah, you just sort of... Unless you've been listening like to... I don't know, Steely Dan nonstop, you're likely going to come out with something that's very groovy and 70s inspired, uh, which I have been doing lately. Actually, in, in the new house that we're in, that's all I've been listening to. And I don't know why, but there's a very Steely Dan feel about the place. And um, I, I literally have not played anything else through those speakers since we moved in for the past two weeks. It's just been the one Steely Dan album from 1974. So, yeah. That's, that's your go-to for Steely Dan? It's my go-to. It's the best one. It's the best album. I don't even know what it's called. I just, that's the one I play. I should know more about Steely Dan. We all should know more about Steely Dan. A terrific band. I feel like, yeah, he they're, they're one of the underrated, Absolutely. like lesser known artists that, because even like when you look at mainstream pop culture, I think John Mulaney, the comedian was on a talk show and talked about how much he loves Steely Dan. Mm, he did. And it was just a very surprising thing because you don't normally hear his name mentioned. Right, right. But you don't, and nobody realizes how many Steely Dan songs they know until you go through that catalog. Mm-hmm. Like, Holy cow. I know most of these songs. Like, you know, if you get an, an idea of like a memory of being at camp with, you know, your uncles in the 60s, 70s, 80s, like that's the Steely Dan soundtrack. It's like, Dudes on a dock, fishing, drinking beer, Steely Dan. That's anyway. That's the memory I've associated with right? Steely Dan. Yeah. Yeah. There's it's there's an atmosphere in a in just a certain type of memory that just automatically comes with it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's very very carefree music, but very regimented at the same time. It's good juxtaposition. And similar to other protest music, isn't to be as prescriptive and and um, forthright about the message. It's to to allow the listener to uncover that for themselves and upon uncovering it themselves, then they feel more connected because, Oh, they've discovered something for themselves about the music that, that means something to them. Um, but I think any kind of outright preachiness, I, I turns off a lot of people and nobody really wants to be told what to, what to think. Um, but if, if, if you're listening to a song that tells a full story, and has that underlying message. And if you agree with that story, if you believe that story, then you'll get the message. Well, and the best example is probably Born in the USA, right? Oh, yeah, that's a great, great um, song for that, for sure. Especially with the non-avoiding the preachiness of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Everyone thinks that's a very patriotic song. In a way, it is, but it's not a, it's, it's not a pro, 
USA song. It's a very accurate and honest song about what it means to be in the USA and what it was to grow up there. Yeah, I mean, many people don't know that, right? Because uh, I imagine, for myself anyway, I don't delve into a lot of protest music or that, that genre of message-driven indie pop type of things where it becomes more of a niche. But, I mean, can you sort of expand on other artists that are playing this very open type of here's my message, here's a point about something that's socially happening they just need to know about? Mm-hmm. Um, U.S. Girls is a great example. Uh, our band on tour covered a song called Mad as Hell uh, about um, the uh, dystopian feeling that women in the 50s and 60s were getting through media messaging. Um, so that's a terrific tune, but very disco. It's a very disco song. So I love that it's not that, you know, acoustic guitar like Bob Dylan and mm. the Lonesome Death of Hattie Carroll style, which I also love. This but it's is your a, stereotypical, this is a protest mm-hmm. song because he has acoustic guitar. Yeah. Unshaven. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Whereas um, the U.S. Girls, it's a, it's a very disco song. You're dancing and then you realize, oh, wait. oh wow, this is a really in your face protest song like it's called mad as hell you know for gosh sakes so yeah so that's uh and and um that artist uh has uh, some other songs that are also very uh very much in the protest tradition mm-hmm. yeah. and i think winter sleep is also in the mix a little bit for that i don't listen to any uh yeah i'll have to check that out they uh their their newest album i noticed had some tinges of trying to copy that rage against the machine message Mm -hmm. but it's more subtle more like uh indie uh surf rock Mm -hmm. type vibe yeah um another artist who who's a personal friend of mine is nick sherman he's from sioux lookout um he's an indigenous artist doing really well right now and i don't know what this this song is called but he has a song about uh, indigenous youth from remote communities having to go into Sioux Lookout and Thunder Bay for uh, high school because high school is not available in their town. And um, the chorus is stay home or start running. And it's it's very powerful. It's a very powerful, uh, socially conscious song. And, and most of his songs are very powerful um, lyrically. And I was going to say that, yeah, because most of his lyrics are something that just make you stop everything and listen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And uh, and Nick really knows what he's talking about. And that's where that authenticity comes into play. You can't fake that. Um, if you didn't live Nick's life, you would never be able to write about that as effectively as he does. So if anyone's listening to this, listen to Nick Sherman. He's fantastic. And if you like Bruce Springsteen, you'll you'll love him too. I I uh, I find his um th- his vibe similar, so I love that music. One song that I play is uh, called "Caroline, You're Gonna Be," and it's uh, um it's a reflection on on the addictions and opioid crisis. Um, and I should mention that I wrote this as an, a guitar song, and I really thought we were gonna do. It on guitar, but then, uh, yeah, John convinced me to, that it was a piano song, so I'm really glad because I love playing it live. But um, I love it on acoustic guitar as well. Yeah, so I welcome opportunities to play it in in this kind of context um, because, yeah, I love I love the percussiveness of the guitar and what I can do with it. I uh, 
I love the piano version that we do as well on the recording and on the, on tour because um, there's a really beautiful uh, instrumental bridge that uh, the boys put in and uh, near the end, um, by the end, it's just Matt Weevil and I both playing him on guitar and me on piano and we play together like a, like a music box that you'd wind up. Mm-hmm. Um, when we do that live performance, it's it's one of my favorite moments um, because uh, Matt Weevil is... Uh, definitely a close friend of mine and uh it's just you know those those moments you play with your friends and like okay buddy it's just us finishing off the song together so yeah yeah it's not just two musicians it's it's just friends playing at that point yeah 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 oh for sure and that's the same with with everyone in the band um i really love those guys and they're i'm very very fortunate to have found a band of people who are very easy to travel with and respectful and uh yeah, and then just like generally responsible. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's been a real blessing. Yeah, you've done a lot with Murder Murder and other members of that, and with Matt yeah. for quite a few years now. Yeah, for sure. Um, they're uh, I initially met them when they asked me to um, to to tour with them. Uh, one of their vocalists in Pistol George Warren. Um, couldn't make the tour. So the, uh, a few of the members of Murder Murder um, were also in Pistol George Warren. So um, I toured with them through Ontario and into Manitoba uh, for a two-week tour and um, uh, grew to just fall in love with everyone in that band. Um, everyone, uh, like, really were, were doing it because of the music and because of the art mm-hmm. and, um, and our great musicians and great artists and uh, pay attention to to art and uh it really inspired me to to continue to operate that way and a lot of the things they do um i try to aspire to as well so yeah so we've been uh, we've worked together on a few things and yeah no stopping now it's already started (laughs) oh yeah (laughs) yeah for sure and are they playing with you for northern lights as well yeah so so um uh actually uh john danilu Matt Weevil, um, Steph Duchesne, and Chris all from, uh, well, from Murder, Murder, but um, Matt Weevil is uh, their their sound guy when they tour. Um, they're in my t- uh, touring backing band, and we're able to add uh, Barry Miles uh, for this performance um, on piano, um, who also plays on the album in uh, on Bound for Glory. And um, and then also, uh, so those are, yeah, those are Murder, Murder guys. And then uh, we've got... Um, Anita Ansema and Nadia Costanzo, who I sing with in Northern Memphis Revival, mm-hmm. my soul sisters, and uh, Lisa Marina Ponce, who I've uh, worked with in some uh, collaborative songwriting formats, and uh, who's um, who's a friend as well, and uh, really thrilled to have her involved as well. Yeah, I, I've noticed that there's a trend that you work with a lot of just close friends, very often, it seems like for most of your projects. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, you know the if you know the people and you know what they're capable of, it's very, um, uh, it just, it, it helps with momentum. Um, you don't get any surprises. And, uh, and also not only for me with these guys, but for the the guys amongst themselves, like they, they can just look at each other and, and know what they're going to do next. Like they have such a language amongst them. So I don't ever have to really worry about, um, their comfort level with each other. Uh, and I'm a very emotional person. Um, I, I really internalize any kind of tension in the group. So for me, it's great that this is a group of people that, um, 
that work so well together and then have mm. for years. So it's uh, it's like a well-oiled machine. And that's a good way to end the show, I think. <laughs> Just on the note of positivity. So for everyone listening, can you tell us where you're, what the times you're playing this weekend and where they can find you online so they can hear, hear the reckoning, which yeah. is your new album? Yeah, so I'll be at, uh, as Jennifer Holub and the Erratics, um, the Erratics are the full backing band, we will be on the main stage this Friday at 7.30 at Northern Lights. And then Barry Miles and Kevin Bright and I are going to be doing the Springsteen Tribute Workshop on Saturday at 1 p.m., filling up a full hour of Bruce Springsteen tunes, which is like a dream come true. And uh, I may or may not be doing um, uh, a performance on the melodica during that time. And as for finding the album, I'm on Bandcamp and Spotify and Apple Music and Google Play. And I have a website as well. And so if they just look for Jennifer Holub, H-O-L-U-B, they will find it. You've been listening to The Music Prophet with Jennifer Holub. And we will see you next week.